All right. Well, so that's an introduction to my most stressful week probably in all of life. Um, you got a church that's starting to grow, and all of a sudden, where are we going to go, and what's going to happen next Sunday? Um, but one of the things that, that really kind of was the, the beginning point for our entire church was that we wanted to be a place where we did a wonderful job. And, in fact, what we kind of realized was churches have a tendency to do two of these things, three things really well um, when it comes to loving people in terms of, like, reaching people who are far from faith, right? Because all of us at one point, we just didn't really know about Jesus. We just didn't really know where we were. We didn't really know what we stood, or we were raised in the context of it, but maybe it wasn't our own, or you were skeptical, or you were atheist, you know, or you've been hurt. But we wanted to be a church, one of those churches that really does a beautiful job, because what Jesus did is when he was on the planet, man, people who were nothing like him flocked by the thousands to come here and be a part of what he was doing, and they loved him. People who were nothing like him, in fact, the people who didn't like him were the people who were the most religious of the folks, but the most sinful of the folks were like, this is our guy. And so we wanted to have that sense of magnetism that Jesus had. And at the same time, we wanted to help people not just go from non-belief to belief, but from belief to maturity, walking life-on-life relationship, discipleship. But central to everything that we wanted to do and who we wanted to be was a ministry and a heart to love and serve the least of these, um, the marginalized, which Jesus would say oftentimes in the kingdom of God is the greatest of these. And what my experience was is that churches usually do good at one or two, but rarely all three of those. And if they do the mission to the marginalized or ministries of mercy well, it's usually just kind of like this like subcommittee. You know, it's like we have our missions committee at our church, and they're like the seven people to 12 people who get together and they actually like care But when we looked at the Bible, man, this was central to the heart of Jesus, and this was central to the heart of all of his believers. It seemed like this was just central, um, front and center to the ministry of who Jesus was, and and we just thought, you know, some churches are getting this right, and we want to be one of those churches. We want to be one of those churches that, that doesn't just say, God loves you, here come to know him, here come to grow in your knowledge and love and affection for him, but we actually wanted that to be displayed to a hurt and lost and a broken world. And so that kind of began to drive us. And so a lot of when we were talking about this stuff, um, it's funny because this whole series, the idea behind it has been, man, just like the faithfulness of God. We first started the series, honestly, um, not when we first started, we first started talking about it a few months back. It was something I started to push back against because, again, what are we just going to do? Celebrate that we made it 10 years? Congratulations, you didn't die. You know, like that just doesn't sound like very, like, it's pretty low expectations. Uh, and the other part of it is like, look at us. We made it 10 years. Um, maybe we should be celebrating Jesus, not us. And then started to realize, looking back through the lens of history, like, man, this was a movement of God. And I can't tell you how providential almost everything that's happened is. Um, when we say that, it was a genuine conversation of, should we? shut down because what I know is I'm going to stand before God someday and I'm going to give an account for how I loved and led and shepherded our church and like who wants to be responsible for this massive group of people that's really just an unfaithful failure to the calling of God and so we just didn't really focus on growth but all of a sudden it became clear like okay God this was never about who to bring in but for whoever would be a part of our church family this is who we would be for and that's been this, this monumental thing. One of the things that was one of the more difficult questions that we had to answer in those early days, and we oftentimes got pressed for this, was, was simply this. What group are you going to love and serve? Like, 
wonderful you want to love and serve the marginalized folks. Wonderful you want to serve, help and serve you know, uh, people who, who, for different places and spaces, have been kind of pushed out, outcast, you know, pushed and said societally as you know, kind of subservient. But, but you should really consider, is it the homeless? Is it the single mom? Is it the kid that, you know, living on the, uh, uh, in low income, you know, single mother had a household um, family? Is it, you know, you know is, is it the refugee that we should serve? Is it the clean water wells that we should do? Like, like, who specifically are we targeted around loving and serving? And the problem was, is when we read the scriptures, it just seemed like God continually did not create boundaries or parameters around this is who your neighbor should be. In fact, the story that we're going to read today is when Jesus was talking to a person, and he gave a story, um, the story in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is, for most of you, you've probably read this before. You've probably at least heard of this idea before. Good Samaritan is, is, is kind of common um, in our current cultural lexicon. But when, when Jesus said this, it was based out of a question that somebody tried to justify themselves and put parameters around who is my Neighbor. Now, if you got your Bible, we're going to read it from the book of Luke. And Luke was a, a, an awesome guy. One of my favorite, actually, accounts of the Gospels, accounts of Jesus' life, is Luke. Because Luke was a doctor. He was a historian. He, was an, uh, he, he interviewed a bunch of people, talked to a bunch of people. He was hired by his more wealthy friend, Theophilus. And he's writing Theophilus, and you read this in Luke chapter 1, to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that he will have kind of an information set to place his faith and his hope behind. And so in Luke 10, he recounts this conversation. Jesus had just got done sending a bunch of people out, 72 out, to go and do some uh, pretty cool, pretty exceptional ministry. Verse 25, and behold, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, I'll tell you something that transcends all of culture's lawyers, right? Like, oh, who, who is the person in their right mind profession that's like, you know what? I know you're the son of God, but I got some thoughts, you know? Classic lawyer, right? Now, what's interesting is this lawyer isn't necessarily lawyer as much as the judicial sense as we think. This was kind of a religious person who was very well versed in the law. First five books of the Old Testament, or as they would kind of think of it as you know, the Hebrew Bible, and he would know that and have a deep, deep, deep level of knowledge. This would be the equivalent of saying the professor or one of the leading professors of theology asked Jesus this question. He put him to the test and he said, teacher, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, one of the things I do love about this question is this is, in essence, the central premise behind all of religion, every religion. Kind of says, how do I find myself in God's good graces or whatever version of a God that there is or you know, pantheon of gods that there are, how do I find myself in God's good graces in this life in the next? How do I take that step forward? How do I find myself in God's good graces? And so Jesus does what he always does, which is answers a question with a question. So he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, let me tell you why I love that. Jesus, one, I'm a big fan of question asking because you get to learn a lot of information when you ask questions. Um, number two is it does make me think that there's questions that I want to ask Jesus and I think he would just answer those with questions, but I don't know what they would be. You know, it's like, Jesus, like, when I get to heaven, I'll be like, all right, so there's a woman at the well. We couldn't drop her name. What's her name? You know? He's like, y'all wouldn't listen if I said her name was Karen. So I'm just going to say the woman at the well. 
Um, Jesus, Adam and Eve, belly buttons. We in or out on that one? You're like, you're like, like, where are we with that? You know? And he'd probably be like, I don't know what he would say back. But answers their question with a question. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And here's what's interesting. Con- contextually, it, it, it looks like this person has heard Jesus talk before. Because he says back to him, when he says, how do you read it? The response is the compilation of a, you know, uh, Deuteronomy and a Leviticus verse. And when he, as he says that, um, people have gotten pieces right, but one time somebody asked Jesus, said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, here's the most important commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. That kind of idea of like it means the second one is connected to it. That all of the law and all of the prophets, everything you read in the Old Testament kind of can be can be nutshelled into this simple idea that you love the Lord your God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus asked them, so you, you tell me, what do you think it is? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, or with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says back to him, You've answered correctly. Now, this is the part where if, like, he's got to be like furious as like the lawyer. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't know how debates work, Jesus. I make a point. You make a counterpoint. I make a point. You make a counterpoint. Jesus says, hold on. I'm not done. Do this, and you will live. And here's where it gets interesting. Because the idea of do this isn't just kind of like as you are doing what you're doing. Do this, and you will receive life. The idea behind this is do this perfectly and you will live. You love the Lord your God perfectly and you will live. You love your neighbor as yourself perfectly and you will live. But here's the problem. We all know this, that even if we thought we could execute this perfectly, we still can't because we oftentimes aren't even aware of what's happening. We have like the conscious, right? But there's things that are driving us deep down below. So even in our best attempts to love God consciously, Oftentimes, subconsciously, our motives are ulterior. Right? Some of us, the reason that we are scared to sin is because we feel like if we sin, God will get us. If I do this, then here's what's going to happen back. This is okay. So you want to live. You want to, see, you want to inherit eternal life. Um, just do this. Do love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's tough, right? Because that means not only would we have to do things to love our neighbor, but you actually have to, like, be incredibly wise to do this. By the way, more wise than anybody in this room. That means you have to perfectly thread the needle in every single situation between what's enabling and empowering, what's helping and what's hurting, what creates healthy and what creates codependence. You're like, man, I've been in therapy for years for that. That's the point. Because we can't. And when he says this, do this, and you will live, what happens to the lawyer is the lawyer feels, frankly, the same thing that we feel, which is this internal tension and this small bit of internal anxiety because we know we don't actually do that and live up to that. So here's what the the lawyer says back. Here's what's happening. So, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Rid himself of this internal angst, this internal guilt that I know I haven't quite done this as I ought to have done this. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
Jesus, can you help me to put parameters around this? Like, I know there's some people who are physically my neighbor, but I don't really kind of consider they're my neighbor because, you know, great fences make great neighbors, and, you know, I don't know that I'm supposed to necessarily love them. And I have people that I see on the side of the road that am I supposed to love them? And what about people that I don't know in a different country? Should I love them? And what about my parents? What about my kids? What about my coworkers? What about my roommates? What about people in fraternity and sorority? Like, 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 who and how do I define a neighbor who is to be loved? Jesus says, and back to him, a man launches into a story, which, by the way, I just want to say, I wish that I was as smart as Jesus because he just, like, can you imagine somebody, like, steps up to you, and you know how you always have that thing you wish you would have said? Imagine being so intelligent and inquisitive that you could say something in a story that people are going to pick apart for the next 2,000 years, right? That's my kind of debater. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Now, they understood this context kind of implicitly because of the place that they lived in. Um, but we don't. The idea was is that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was an incredibly dangerous road. There's some people that called it kind of like, the, like, like blood road, basically, because there was a lot of twists, a lot of turns, a lot of places. It was very secluded. People would oftentimes get robbed. People would oftentimes get um, beaten up. You know, all kinds of stuff would happen. And so they're thinking in their mind, I know where this is going, right? It's kind of like if you ever, like, go to Gainesville, right? It's like, oof, that's not going to go well, you know? It's like somebody went from Florida State to Florida, and everybody said, oh, on purpose, you know? So he goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They're thinking, of course he did. Who stripped him, beat him, departed he left him half dead. Now, at this point, they're seeing this story, and they're hearing this, and they're saying, okay, now, now what happens next, Jesus? So we've got a guy walking on the side of the road, probably wasn't a good idea, kind of honestly his own fault, should have taken responsibility, perhaps should have done something else, but a guy walks, he's beaten, he's bloody, he's naked, he has nothing, he is vulnerable, and he is half dead. In other words, this guy definitively is helpless. So, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Priest walking down the road. This was the, you know, the people that are usually in charge of the sacrifice. These were people in charge of the temple. These were, these were the priests. And the priest sees this person. And what's interesting is, and most people, most commentators will agree, that the reason probably the, the priest saw him pass by is because in their kind of day and in their age, they had created a series of laws and of rituals that basically said if you, if you exchange or interact with somebody that's in that state, you are now ceremonially unclean. So he functionally probably wouldn't have been able to do his job. And so he looks at him and he sees him. And he walks by on the other side. So likewise, in the same way, a Levite, which was kind of a mixture of like a worship leader and a janitor mixed into one. Personally, I really like that job description. When he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. Now, here's what's interesting, and people will go on all kinds of lengths to explain why it is and the probable reasons, kind of the inner workings. This is also, by the way, a made-up story. So it's not like they were actually thinking anything. These are kind of like characters in the story that Jesus is making up as he's going. But here's what I do find interesting about it. 
While these people did have very good religious reasons to avoid, they were also the primary ones responsible of the people of God in their day and age to show mercy. But something about the person that they saw made them think, if I do this, it will make me unwell. It will make me unclean. It will make me a particular type of way that I don't particularly like. Now, here's why I think it's interesting. Here's why I think we really start to enter into the story. Here's what I know about each and every one of us. We contextually know we should be a good Samaritan. We even know what's about to happen in the story of the good Samaritan for many of us. But what's interesting is, is when we think and we identify with the Samaritan as being the good person. But isn't this true for each and every one of us? There is a group of people that you are hesitant to engage with because of the fact of what it will mean to you. Because of how it will inconvenience you, because of what being associated might mean for you, the fact that you are working with, having community with, that you are ministering to a particular group of people, people you are afraid might look at you and might think and associate you with them. Every one of us, consciously or subconsciously, does this. And it's on a whole bunch of different things. Some of it's socioeconomic, sure. Some of it's political. You're like, see, that's why I don't like Democrats. See, that's why I don't like Republicans. Ethnicity. Gender. Sexuality. And that's just to name a few. But nonetheless, the people who were most responsible for loving and serving were the people who most clearly avoided. It says, and then. But. A Samaritan. Now, many of you know this, but Samaritans contextually, they were like enemies with the Jews. It had a whole lot of history um, from when the Assyrians came in and the Persians came in and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But it just kind of like not spare you all those details. I'll tell you this. One of the teachings that was not universal, but it wasn't uncommon, was in different Jewish schools of thought. Rabbis would teach, if you see a Samaritan woman trying to give birth, Do not help her, because if you help her and she has a healthy baby, you are contributing to the problem. That's the level of animosity that existed within this group. And so Jesus looks at him and says, but here's the thing. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this man on the side of the road. And when he saw him, he had compassion. That's the starting point, by the way. So when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion is to see the need with a drive to meet the need. And he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set it on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So this guy sees him. Sees him on the side of the road. Sees him bloody. Sees him beat. Sees him naked. Sees him you know, on, on the verge of death, and he goes and he helps him. He says, oh, my gosh, i got to do something about this guy. And he gets out his, his, you know, wine. Maybe we don't know what he was holding on to that one for later. Maybe he had a football game coming up, right? But, like, he sees him, starts to pour it off, starts to cleanse it, starts to do you know, this antiseptic-type thing, and then he puts oil, kind of soothes it, and then he bounds him up, and then he puts him on his donkey. Now, part of this is he put him on his animal or whatever it was that he was, you know, riding into the town on that day. And he takes the seat and says, here, you take my seat. I'll take yours. And I'm going to walk when I should be riding. And you can do this. And as he goes, he goes to the inn and he takes care of the guy himself. We're going to unpack some of that in a little bit. In the next day, wait, the next day means he stayed the night. 
That's personal. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This was depending on the level of the inn and depending on the time and which person you read. This is anywhere between two weeks and two months worth of rent that he's paying. Comes in, he heals him, walks with him, stays with him, spends with him. Gives him the money that it would take for him to make in a couple days. And the fact that he has enough money saved up means he probably has a high daily wage. And in doing that, he pays for him for a couple weeks to a couple months, potentially, that he couldn't pay just to heal this guy. And the story's over. Jesus kind of pulls back out of it and says this in verse 36. Which of these three, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to a man who fell among the robbers. So you tell me, which one do you think proved to be a neighbor? I want you to notice something. The man began by asking the question, who is my neighbor? Help me to put parameters around this. Help me to put boundaries around this. Help me to some way, shape, or form come to a a clear delineation and fence off and categorize who is my neighbor. Jesus answered, who is my neighbor with how to be a neighbor. Because Jesus is more focused on us being great neighbors than defining who our neighbor is. And here's why. Because when I can define my neighbor, I can limit love. If I know who my neighbor is, that also means I know who my neighbor is not. And the problem is, is we serve a God who for so loved the entire world that he gave his son. So Jesus looks at him as they're talking, and he says, he says, I want you to not focus on who is my neighbor. I want you to focus on how to be a neighbor, because if you are a neighbor, you'll be a neighbor to everyone around you. Now, what's interesting is we read through this. We read through this, and I was thinking, I was like, okay, God, I feel like we know this. Conceptually, we know this. Conceptually, we understand this. Conceptually, there's not a lot of us that are like, what? I'm supposed to be a good Samaritan? But like I said, this is probably not going to be a lot of new information. But let me just ask this question. Do we do this? Like, Like, truly do we do this? Look at what the guy had to do. Number one, he had to. He had to get off his horse and get physically involved, or off his donkey, or off his camel, or off whatever he had, right? Out of his Tesla opens the door, right? And he gets physically involved. He starts helping this person, right? He starts personally tending to this guy's wounds. Then he puts him on his horse, takes a place of humility, and says, let me walk with you, let me stay with you. So number one, we don't know that this guy was a doctor. We don't know this guy knew what he was doing. He just walks up and says, I see a need, and I might not be equipped to meet that need, but I'm going to do my best to meet that need anyways. Number two is I am going to take the time to do this. And number three is I'm going to pay for it too. Talks to the innkeeper and says, innkeeper, here's here's what I have. Here's my money. Let me know if it costs anything else and I'll pay for that too. Here's what I think is interesting. When I read this story, and I was thinking, okay, God, this is, this is us. I thought, you know what's interesting? Is the three things 
that he did are the three reasons why we don't. Because I don't have time, I'm not equipped, and I don't have the financial margin. I don't have time, I'm not equipped, and I don't have the financial margin. Now, isn't this interesting? Because what the, what the lawyer did in seeking to justify himself, make himself feel better about his lack of productivity was to say, now how do I define who my neighbor is? And when I read that and I started thinking about that, I'm thinking, man, in the same way when we read this story, we start categorically disqualifying ourselves and saying, okay, these are all of the reasons why I don't actually have to do this because I'm busy and I've got kids and I've got a job and I've got responsibilities and I've got class and I've got practice and I've got this function that I've got later and I've got this group that I've got to do and I've got all these things and I just simply don't have time. And plus, I mean, I'm not even equipped. I don't even know how to help. I don't even know how to serve. I don't even know what to do. And on top of that, I mean, I don't have margin. Let me just tell you, like all of those things are legitimate and none of those things matter. Because here's what we ultimately get down to. And here's the bottom line of this. Here's what we're saying. It's not that it's impossible. It's that we're unwilling because if we were willing, then we would do what we have, whatever we had to do to change it. Right? In other words, let me say it this way. The reality is, the reality is this. I look at this story, and I think if I actually did this, I would have to change everything. Here's the good news. The gospel changes everything. It changes everything about us. It changes everything about our heart. It changes everything about our lives. It all of a sudden says, my life is not about me. It's about God. My life is not about me. It's about God. And it's about the way that God pours into me, loves me, serves me, and the way that I show that and display that to other people. Think about this. Think about this. What he said when he asked Jesus to test him was not, Jesus, um, what does it mean to love God? Because here's the thing. I can't judge your relationship with God. I can't. I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on with you. I don't know what's going on between you and the Lord. I have no clue. But he feels some type of a way about his relationship with his neighbor. And so he looks, and Jesus looks at him and says, let me just, let me just ask you a question. Let me just ask you a question at the end of this. Which of these was the neighbor? And he says, he said back to Jesus, it's almost like he didn't want to even say the, the word. He said, the one who showed him mercy. I feel like if I were Jesus, I'd be like, yep, the Samaritan. That's what you meant to say, right? Thought so. This is what Jesus says. You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Let me ask you this. If you're here and you're, in a, and one of the things I love is that every Sunday we have just handfuls and handfuls of folks that you come here and you're just not sure about God. And you're just not sure about faith. And you're just not sure about Jesus and Christianity. And a lot of that reason is probably because of the fact that you've seen a bunch of Christians who just, when it came to the reality of their life, you just didn't see it. Let me just ask you this question. How would you think of God differently? How would you think about God differently if you saw a group of Christians who actually went and did likewise? 
Like, how much differently would you think about Jesus? If you didn't just hear these words and contextualize them and see people just dismissing and dismissing and dismissing, but what if you actually saw people do this? What if you actually saw people say, you know what, I need to slow down my life instead of keeping up with the Joneses. I need to try to keep up with the least of these, and I need to slow down my life so I have margin to love and to serve people. What if it was, we realize, man, God has given me, I live in the United States of America, I have an extraordinary potential to earn income, but perhaps my income earning is not the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption assumes that everything that I create, every wealth that I have, I have created for my consumption. What if I'm living in a way that I am living below my means with margin, because let's be honest, all of this, you know what it takes? Margin. That's it. Margin. That's it. But what if we actually said, okay, in order to do this, I would have to live with margin. And we said, you know what? Displaying the gospel in my life, was that worth it to me? My good friend James, who was here at the 915 service, runs a, uh, a nonprofit called Neighborly that does some amazing work all over the place. They had this phrase, that love it just says, live simply that others may simply live. Like, what if that was like the thrust, the idea, the push behind what we were doing? So Jesus says, you go and do likewise. And the reason I love the fact that he asked who my neighbor is is because of the fact that I can't judge your relationship with God, but we can also all see how we love and serve the people around us. And again, Jesus said, love the Lord your God, and the second one is connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second one is the natural outer flow of the inflow. Now, Let me say one more thing about this parable and we'll be done. The brilliant thing about Jesus as a communicator, I mean the absolutely blisteringly brilliant thing about Jesus as a communicator, is remember the initial question. How do I inherit eternal life? This was not simply a story about how to be good. This is a a story about how do I receive salvation, how do I receive forgiveness. Jesus double layers this parable on the spot in such a way as if to say, hey, you want to know what a good Samaritan is? A good Samaritan is a person who sees the need, has the margin to meet the need, makes space, goes out of their way, does the thing, helps the thing, restores the person, pays for the person, and helps to bring them into full restoration. By the way, you are the man on the side of the road, not the good Samaritan. Think about this. The gospel declares that we are sinful. The gospel declares that we are hurting, we are broken, we are vulnerable, we are needy, we are helpless. We have all sinned and gone astray. God in his holiness knew that. You know what he did? He came down off his high horse. He helped to wound the wounds. He helped to heal. And he paid the price on the cross that we could not pay, that we now have reconciliation. You want to know how to become a good Samaritan? Is that to decide, I'm going to go be good to good people. It's to realize that I'm not Jesus is. When I identify as the man on the side of the road who is hurting, broken, bloody, vulnerable, and about to die, I come to the realization that, God, you saved me. You gave everything for me. Isaiah says it this way, that, that, that he, God, sits enthroned above the circles of the earth and the people are like grasshoppers. Now, we might die for a good person, but which one of us in our right mind would ever think, oh, there's a grasshopper. I'm going to send my kids to die for them. It's ridiculous. I step on grasshoppers, right? But that's the unfathomable love of God. 
And what the gospel says is when we get that, how much God has loved us. That's why the second one is connected to it. Because when we get the love that God has for us and the spirit of God is inside of us and it wells up inside of us in such a way that it pours out to love and to serve the people around us. And what if, what if that was the reputation of the church? What if that was what people 10 years from now thought and they said, you know what, I used to think church was this type of a way, but I saw a group of people love and serve beyond comprehension, love and serve beyond boundaries, love and serve when it got messy, love and serve when they sacrificed, love and serve and they had to pay and it cost them personally, it cost them financially, and honestly they weren't even equipped, but they did it anyways. We'd probably think a little bit differently about church and about Jesus and about God. Man, this parable is so easy to understand, but so incredibly difficult to live out. As I was thinking and just praying about this, I thought this is the type of church that I want to be a part of. Ones that loves one that serves, but not out of a compulsion because I just need to because God said it, but one from a deep, genuine place as I have been so loved by God, I can't help but to save, but to love and to serve the people around me. But I was the man on the side of the road. And so when I see anybody else in their brokenness, I don't come to it from a place of superiority. I just say, you know what? Me too. This little thing called empathy, learning, loving. So here's the question for you. Here's the question I think that at the end of the day is what we all have to wrestle with in this. And it's not simply how do we be better people. Have I fully grasped the reality that I am the man on the side of the road? Because when I do, the gospel changes everything. The good news of Jesus changes everything. His death for me, love poured out for me, changes everything. And I'm praying, not for one individual action, but through that realization, God doesn't make us a great neighbor to a person, but he changes our hearts so we are that person to every person. And I think if we did that, our churches, our lives would look a whole lot more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to just be transformed to look like you? God, would you help us to get off of our high horse or the horse that we think we're on and actually just help us to realize that we are the man on the side of the road. We are the person who made bad decisions. We are the person who has made mistakes, and we now stand in the, in the wake of of that, in the shadow of that. But God, you saw that, and you didn't see us as people to be avoided. You didn't see us as sin to walk around. You saw us, and you embraced us, healed us, paid for us. And Jesus, you're coming back for us. And so God, I pray that we can realize we are that person. And that can well up inside of us a heart to truly, genuinely, authentically love and serve like you did. 
God, as we love you from the love that you have poured into us, would you help us to be great neighbors to the world around us because we realize that's what you did for us when we didn't deserve it? Would you give us the wisdom to see ourselves clearly and the courage to be honest about our brokenness and our sinfulness and your love that invades and restores? Would you give us the wisdom to see this lost and hurting and broken world? And would you give us the courage to love without boundaries or stipulations? just like you, King Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you guys for being here this Sunday with us. Um, we got a team up front. We would love to pray for you about anything and everything that you have going on, as well as take your next steps into our church or just what it means to follow Jesus. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.